I don't think this podcast has a mission statement. I have no lofty goals, and I think it'd be generous to claim that there's a point to all of this. Uh, I'm a white dude in my late 30s who makes recordings about his very important movie opinions, and there's no shortage of that on the internet. I have no idea why anyone listens to me at all, really. I guess if there is a point, however, it's to explore why certain pieces of media affect us the way that they do. I am, after all, going through the trouble of preparing dialogues that hopefully do close readings of these subjects. Uh, They matter to me at the very least, and I think it's healthy to ask why that is. I also try to ask my guests to explain why they picked the subjects they went with on their turns and how it has touched their life in whatever way it has. If there's any kind of meat to the show, it's probably there. And yeah, the Three Stooges embody such questions as well as anything else. Uh, The documentarian Ken Burns has observed that as certain cultural properties age, they usually fade out of common public conversation. To put a marker on it, Burns claims that the time between the 50th anniversary and the 60th anniversary is when the property slips into obscurity. I'm not wholly convinced that this is completely universal. I think that the internet and streaming in particular has flattened cultural half-lives quite a bit. For instance, 18th century sea shanties were briefly a TikTok fad in 2020. Still, uh, how internet culture affects cultural memory is still something that we're kind of sorting out. Burns cited the Beatles as the foremost example of a cultural institution that seems impervious to the phenomenon he just described, but I think one could also make a a case for the Stooges. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how uh, Gen Z is going to approach these shorts, if they're ever going to on any kind of wide level, but... Even though they have faded from the public discourse a bit since the actors' careers ended, I think that most of their peers have diminished even further, or have been utterly forgotten by all but the very nerdiest. So yeah, I think it's an intriguing question, why the Three Stooges out of everything else? What is it about them that makes them endure in ways that other Golden Age Hollywood comedy stars haven't? Uh, We've gone over related enigmas while deconstructing the comedic personas of Shemp Howard and Larry Fine, and now it's time to examine things once again, but this time through the prism of Mo Howard. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Just as uh, it was on the Shep and Larry shorts, I am joined by Rachel. Yes, um, so I was the one who kind of started this, and originally we were just going to do Shemp, and then we are like, well, why don't we just do this for all the four main stooges, right? And I'm glad we decided to do it in, like, order of reverse relevance. And Mo is my favorite stooge. I don't know why, I just think he's kind of funny. I feel like he's sort of like the middle ground, because everybody picks. Curly, right? I mean, we're going to get to him eventually. Yeah, I mean, Curly is everybody's favorite stooge, especially when they're kids, because he just... He's funny and goofy. Yeah, he takes up most... He he chews more of the scenery. Mm -hmm. Although I think... I mean, inadvertently, this wasn't a conscious decision on our parts, but we've been doing them in the order in which they joined Ted Healy's act. Well, you know what? That's an interesting way of doing it. You know what? It worked out, didn't it? Well, I picked two shorts, and then Rachel picked two yes. shorts. Mm-hmm. And uh, but before we start doing going over the shorts, I figured I'd do an overview of uh, Mo Howard's life leading up to his film career with the Stooges. We're going to be treading over a territory that we've covered on the Larry and Shemp episodes, but this is from Mo's perspective. Uh, Moses Harry Horowitz was born in uh, Brooklyn on June 19, 1897, uh, the fourth of five children. 
One thing I picked up in a Stooges biography I read in the, in the sixth grade, but I'm um, reacquainted myself with. Mo learned how to read mostly through his older brother Jack's Horatio Alger books. And if you're not familiar with that writer, his work largely centered on poor working class kids ultimately making it big due to their inherent incorruptible moral virtue. Kind of like Baby's First Oliver Twist. More than a few people, including those in Moe's life, have speculated that this influenced Moe's outlook and his work ethic. Like, both on and off screen, he was the leader of the Three Stooges. And for better or worse, but we'll get to that. Uh, Moe's parents had no background in show business. Usually if we're talking about, like, early Golden Age Hollywood people, they tend to be the children of theaters performers, but not in this case. Mo was nonetheless bitten by the acting bug and began blowing off school to sneak into plays. He dropped out of high school after two months and soon abandoned a vocational school course to work as a gopher for Vitagraph Studios. After just running a whole bunch of errands, Mo got a few bit parts in various films, but uh, a 1910 fire destroyed all of the footage, and yeah, we have no idea what he did. No, oh, it's too bad. Uh, as a child, Mo's mother refused to cut his hair, which he found very pretty, and let it grow down to his shoulders. <laughs> uh, bullied mercilessly for this, a couple decades early, for that type of look on dudes, Mo swiped a pair of scissors and cut his golden mane off himself. Uh, <laughs> This is the origin of the bowl cut he sports in most Stooges performances. Uh, Mo teamed up with his brother Shemp and eventually did a blackface routine for a traveling minstrel show called Howard and Howard, A Study in Black. They also supplemented their income by moonlighting for a rival troupe without makeup. In 1921, uh, Shemp joined Ted Healy's vaudeville show as a stooge, you know, a guy who just like blunders onto the stage and seemingly interrupts the act. <laughs> a few years into the act, while um, Shemp was still on, on a kind of probationary period, Mo attended a performance and playfully heckled Shemp from the audience. The resulting back and forth exchange was a big hit with the crowd, and Healy started bringing Mo into the show to stage it again and again at various uh, repeat performances. However, after he got married to uh, Helen Schoenberger, Harry Houdini's cousin, interestingly enough, Mo left show business for more steady work, although he never really latched on to um, regular blue-collar jobs. He never held on to one for very long, aside from dealing real estate in his mother's business. After the success of Ted Healy's A Night in Spain, however, Healy coaxed Mo to rejoin the act with new player Larry Fine. Uh, after a sequel show called A Night in Venice, the crew was redubbed Ted Healy and his Racketeers and then Ted Healy and his Stooges. Uh, the film's soup to nuts followed in 1930, with uh, Moe being credited as Harry Howard for some reason. I know, maybe they were testing out, you know, some stage names, because I know Curly was Jerry in a few. Well, that's his actual name. Yeah. Shemp left the act after personal disagreements with Healy, whom Shemp found to be drunken, scammy, and belligerent. Moe suggested that his baby brother Jerome be uh, Shemp's replacement. Healy was reluctant, but he relented when Jerome shaved off all his hair, shaved off his mustache, and then crashed a live performance to the uproarious delight of the audience. Jerome then took the stage name of Curly. Uh, Healy and the Stooges were signed by MGM, but Mo, Larry, and Curly were not getting along with Healy for reasons that we've covered in prior episodes. Put it short, Healy was careless with money and was likely ripping them off. Uh, MGM was already grooming Healy as a solo star, so the Stooges parted ways and wound up Columbia, where they'd make 190 com comedic shorts between 1934 and 1957. 
And the synopsis for the four Mo shorts that we picked for this. Uh, the first one being Punch Drunks, in, uh, which was released in 1934 and is the second short overall. Yeah, and this one uh, Ryan picked. We covered in the Larry episodes Woman Haters, and it's just amazing that just how, like, immediate... Oh, yeah, this feels like a Three Stooges short. This one is. They all go by, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly. You know, the, the roles are established immediately. Mo is the leader, Curly's the victim, and Larry is the closest thing to a straight man. Yeah, there are things that feel out of skew with your typical Stooges short in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like Curly gets slapped by people other than Mo or Larry, and uh, the Stooges don't already know each other going in. Mm-hmm. But besides that, I mean, they've been doing this act more or less the same way on Vaudeville for decades leading up to this. It's not that hard to believe that it mm-hmm. snapped into place, but yes, if you watch this out of order, it feels like a typical Stooge short it, it, for most things. It really things. does. And it is considered a classic. It's pretty funny. Uh, they get a lot of mileage out of the, you know, all right, Curly needs to be a boxer, wrestler, or something, and if he, you play, play a certain song, or he smells wild hyacinth, or he sees a mouse, he goes absolutely nuts, and he is really good at whatever sport they're trying to break into. I mean, it, it works. Yeah, these shorts were not designed to be marathoned. Most people were under the impression that it would run for, like, a couple of months and then be dropped and completely forgotten, so you get a lot of recycling here. Uh, Mo, a struggling boxing manager, is having lunch with three of his fighters who are threatening to quit in anger for not being paid. However, upon hearing the song Pop Goes the Weasel being played by Larry and his violin, the timid waiter attending to the group, Curly, goes into a violent fugue state and knocks out all three fighters as well as the restaurant's cruel owner. He's like, woo, 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 woo. He like starts slapping his face and he you know, uppercut champion. And I, you know, you just pointed this out now and made me think of like Mo as like a, a jerky manager who doesn't pay his guys. I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> It's interesting, is it in Woman Haters? Mm-hmm. Curly does the woo-woo-woo, but um, he hasn't mm-hmm. doesn't quite have it down. In this one, it's exactly the way yep, that... Yep, he's got the yeah. woo-woo-woo. Mo recruits Curly as a boxer and hires Larry to play his tune ringside so Curly can easily defeat his opponents and win them prize money. As Curly trains on a rural road under Mo's supervision, they notice a young lady whose car is stuck in a ditch. Oh, yoo-hoo! Gentlemen! <laughs> and he's like, Mo just goes, she, did he hear that? She means gentlemen. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mo tries to help her, urging Curly not to get involved, stating that boxing and women don't mix. But he eventually asks Larry to play the uh, Pop Goes the Weasel tune to give Curly the strength to move the car, after which Curly rides away with the lady. Fighting under the name K.O. Stradivarius. <laughs> yeah, he's got a really great logo. It's a violin, upside-down violin with the two bows crossed, and he's got um, musical notes on his behind. Which then play tunes when someone punches them. I mean, it's a Three Stooges short. They're, they're basically living cartoons. Curly quickly becomes the top contender for the heavyweight championship. Uh, however, on the night of the title bout, Mo finds him with a lady in a dressing room and chastises Curly, telling him to avoid women and go into the arena. Second since the first round, reigning champion 
killer killed off, knocks Curly out of the ring and onto Larry, smashing his violin. Well, I mean, I guess they, you know, the, the Three Stooges, they're not going to think far enough ahead that maybe having a backup violin would be a good idea. Larry frantically searches the streets in search of anything that will play the song, while Kilduff mercilessly pummels Curly. <laughs> uh, he finds a radio broadcasting the tune and hurries back to the arena with it, and while the music does revitalize Curly, it ends just as he's about to land a knockout punch, switching to a man telling a children's story involving Peter Rabbit. <laughs> and the fight then swiftly returns to Kilduff's favor. An infuriated Mo smashes the radio over Larry's head and sends him out to find something else that they can use. Larry then commandeers a politician's campaign truck that is playing Pop Goes the Weasel, <laughs> drives back to the arena, and crashes in through the wall just as Curly has been knocked down and is about to be counted out. Uh, Curly is energized once again and easily knocks Kildoff out to win the championship, then accidentally knocks out Mo and Larry as the music continues and to play. everybody else, all the people who are working with the boxers and the referee... <laughs> Punch Drunks is the only short with the Stooges themselves as the principal writers, Mo handling the treatment and then crediting Curly and Larry um, on rewrites. Uh, with Healy gone, Mo essentially became the boss of the act, giving orders, using violence to punish his subordinates, and essentially being the guy who moves the plot forward. Uh, this reminded me of something that the creators of Aqua Teen Hunger Force used to describe the Frylock character. <laughs> that the story can't move until Frylock does stuff, which, you know, is kind of like a Mo thing, but mm -hmm. at the same time, Frylock's main role in Aqua Teen Hunger Force is to try to put out fires, usually unsuccessfully. Mo is just sort of, like, pushing things forward. He's the heavy. Yeah, Master Shake is the heavy in the Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> Obviously, there's no evolution between the Stooges and Aqua Teen Hunger Force. It just goes from one to the next. I mean, Meatwad is definitely a curly. Look at him and tell me there's a god. <laughs> uh, Columbia loved Moe's treatment and rushed it in the production. Uh, it was shot from May 2nd to 5th in 1934. That's pretty fast. Yeah, the Stooges shorts generally had fast turnarounds. Uh, Stars and Stripes Forever was initially going to be the song that drove Curly berserk, but uh, Larry suggested Pop Goes the Weasel as a funnier option. It is funnier, and I feel like people would be like, that's too patriotic to have da 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 And also, Stars and Stripes Forever was not in the public domain oh, at the time. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> so Columbia, preferring something that they didn't have to pay licensing for, readily approved. I mean, that's... That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we should reiterate here that um, these shorts were not profitable in and of themselves. They were generally created as loss leaders in order to make film packages more enticing to theater owners. You know, like not only do you get this A picture, but you get this B picture that's also fine, and then a cartoon and maybe some short comedies and a newsreel. Yeah, it's like the Three Stooges never got rich doing this at all. I mean, they were, like, probably pretty comfortable, but never wealthy. This is the first Stooges short where Larry plays his violin. Um, interestingly enough, there are only nine Stooges shorts where uh, Larry plays the violin. I'm surprised by that because it feels like so much more. Yeah, it does feel like an, uh, an important part of this character, but once again, like, Punch Drunks is considered one of the canonical Stooges shorts, so I, I can see it being inflated in the mind's eye. It also reminds me of, like, Apu on The Simpsons says, mm -hmm. thank you, come again, eight times in 30 years. Damn. I know, that catchphrase is so much bigger than its actual use. Mm-hmm. 
Curly's woo 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 in the punch dress <laughs> was frequently recycled in later shorts. Uh, Charles King, who plays the man standing on the back of the truck that uh, Larry steals, broke his leg for real during the pratfall. Oh no! And that's the thing, it's not an especially, <laughs> like... No, it's not! Like, dastardly looking pr- uh, pratfall. No. I, I wouldn't have thought that he got hurt for that. Same, I was like, I was expecting to, you know, guess right away that that was the moment where somebody broke a leg, but I was like, oh, okay. I guess he just landed wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember reading an interview with Michelle Yeoh when she said that, you know, she broke something before uh, filming Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said it, you know, it wasn't any, like, special circumstance. She was just doing the same types of uh, calisthenic uh, warming up workouts that she does for everything. And then she just, like, landed on her ankle wrong. Oh, whoops. Director Lou Breslow, after handling punch drunks, direct early films for Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello. He also helmed the infamous 1951 Ronald Reagan vehicle, Bedtime for Bonzo. <laughs> uh, so he had an interesting post his career. Yeah, he really did. <laughs> uh, Punch Drunks was marked for preservation by the Library of Congress in 2002. This is the first and so far only Stooges short to get this treatment. I'm kind of surprised that, like, Men in Black didn't get it. Or anything else, really. Yeah. Alright, um, the next short that we're talking about is You Nasty Spy, which uh, I also picked. Um, this is reportedly Moe's favorite. I always try to pick the uh, short that, that the Stooge we're talking about is, you know, mm-hmm. their preferred one. Although Larry has also occasionally said that uh, he can consider this their finest work. I mean, when you think about it within its historical context and then think of it now, uh, you, na- you Nasty Spy, it is a great piece of filmmaking. And it's, like we've talked about it before, you can't forget that the Three Stooges are Jewish. It's important to their identity, especially here. It's also pretty funny. It is, yeah. This is the Three Stooges short made in 1940. So before World War, before America entered World War II, officially, where the Three Stooges, not as themselves, I noticed, they're like Mo Hailstone, Gale Stone, and Pebble. So there's like that plausible deniability that they are playing characters within this. Because usually, quote unquote, the Three Stooges play themselves in the shorts, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so in this one, they brutally parody Hitler and was the fat Goring and Goebbels. I'm like, who's the fat bastard's name? I always forget that guy. And there are lots of little jokes in there, as Ryan will describe later, that are just for the Jewish people in the audience. Yeah, this is the 44th short overall, and uh, it begins with a title card, disclaimer reading, any resemblances between the characters in this picture and any persons living or dead is a miracle. This was likely thrown in to assuage the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. But you said that um, shorts were not as looked at as deeply as other things, which is probably why they were able to get away with this. Yeah. In the fictional country of Moronica, <laughs> three munitions manufacturers, Messrs. Ixnay, uh, Richard Fisk, Onay, Dick Curtis, and Amsgray, Don Badeau, were upset over their lack of profits due to the country's king, Herman the Sixth and Seventh Eights. <laughs> 
uh, a role that is an allusion to German Kaiser Wilhelm II in exile, uh, pursuing a policy of peace instead of war. Uh, they decide to oust the king in a coup, implement the dictatorship, and go about finding someone stupid enough to be a figurehead leader. Ixne volunteers the three wallpaper hangers simultaneously <laughs> working in the dining room, the Stooges. It's an allusion to Hitler himself being a paper hanger, and also just the way that pretty much all dictators have to uh, function. While they are the while you know people like Hitler and Mussolini and modern figures such as Putin do rule their uh, respective countries with an iron fist, they do so with a tenuous alliance with the oligarchs. As long as the oligarchs are making money, they won't make waves and they won't you know oppose any of the um, dehumanizing atrocities that the dictator is um, committing. It's a tenuous balance. That's probably one of the reasons why uh, Donald Trump wasn't able to seize power in the way he was. He wasn't pleasing the oligarchs. Yeah, it's like, well, what's a dictator do? It's like, oh, he, he makes love to beautiful women, drinks champagne, promises the people everything, gives them nothing, and takes everything. And Curly's like, whoa, a parasite. <laughs> Ixne, One, and Amsgray meet with Mo Hailstone, Curly Gallstone, and Larry Pebble, and tell them <laughs> of their offer to run Moronica. Mm-hmm. Mo is instituted as the leader, the Hitler role, with yeah. Curly as Field Marshal Gallstone, representing Hermann Goring, while also mimicking the Benito Mussolini. Uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, Larry is the Minister of Propaganda Pebble, uh, a representation of Goebbels in a way. All you think of is like, what's propaganda? And it's like, well, well, Papaganda marries a momaganda and has little goslings. Like, this one, there are a lot of jokes in here besides like the political ones. They just like do everything, anything funny you can think of within this context. I'm glad it, it took me until the second short to um, resist making Marx Brothers comparisons, but yeah, in Duck Soup, there there are some allusions to the uh, Mussolini dictatorship, but it's almost exclusively just kidding around. Uh, the, the Marx Brothers were actually pretty surprised and amused when Mussolini banned the movie in Italy. <laughs> Groucho described it as, we're just a couple of Jews having a laugh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in case you are, the point was incredibly obvious, like when Mo is thinking, he accidentally like gets some ink on his finger and touches his, you know, upper lip getting the stupid Hitler stash and then pushes half of his bowl cut around so he can look extra Hitlery. <laughs> After his takeover, Hailstone proceeds to give a speech to the masses, cueing Larry to display cards, reading cheers and applause. Or hiss. Yeah, yeah, Larry accidentally holds up a hiss. Why they even made that card is beyond me. Like, every Thursday you will have hamburger and eggs. However, the daughter, Lorna Gray, of the overthrown king, pays Hailstone a visit going by the name of Maddie Herring, a spoof of the World War I spy, the Matahari, who, if you are historically inclined, you're already aware that she was a spy for the French and was killed for the wrong reasons. Uh, the Stooges eventually suspect her of being a spy and sentence her to execution, but she escapes because they assigned Curly to execute yeah, her. Yeah, it's like blindfold, and she's like, of course. And so she blindfolds Curly, and then he, you know, shoots Mo in the butt instead. Larry then saws off the corners of a table to be ready for a roundtable meeting, because in Moronica, nothing is ever square. Yes, like, Moronica for morons! A ballerina enters and tells them that the delegates have arrived for the meeting, and in said peace meeting, Mo tells the delegates that his country, Moronica, demands more land concessions from its neighbors, leading the delegates to start arguing with him. Curly manages to silence these delegates by knocking them out with golf balls, but after the meeting, a large angry mob led by the 
King and Maddie Herring advances upon the palace. The trio quickly abdicate, only to inadvertently flee into a lion's dead, and then they are chased off and eaten off screen. The lions walk out, each one wearing either pebble, gallstone, or hailstone's respective clothing, as one of them burps, concluding the film. Yeah, I've noticed that this one and I think the sequel to this, the sequel short to this one, more, I'd say more of like a companion, because this one does have an ending. Like, the Three Stooges don't usually die at the end of their shorts. You Nasty Spy was a fairly bold move at the time, as America was still officially neutral, although Roosevelt was arming England under the sly. But in America, the brown shirts were very prevalent, and the America First movement was using America's history of isolationist stances to popularize enabling fascism, largely through the efforts of Charles Lindbergh, you know, the former uh, aviator hero. The America First movement is often ignored, especially when we do contemporary looks back at World War II, which is a shame because I do think it has a lot of parallels with modern-day fascist en- enablement. Yeah. I mean, the Trump administration was able to use the America First slogan, and they essentially got away with it, even though there were people pointing out, like, hey, um, Nazi apologists used that 80 years ago. Yeah, it, there's. I think when it comes to World War II, the cultural hangover is that it's America, fuck yeah, we came and saved the day for everybody else. And, you know, it's a very poor look at history to ignore the fact that, you know, there were a lot of Americans who were like, that Hitler fellow is doing the right thing. I mean, Hitler cribbed a lot of his shitty-ass policies from American policies. Oh, yeah, the Nazis Mm -hmm. toured the, the United States and had great admiration for Jim Crow, something that we should be more aware of. Mm-hmm. And we won't be, at least in Florida. All right, uh, You Nasty Spy is almost constantly compared to uh, Charlie Chaplin's feature film, The Great Dictator. Chaplin had finished filming that movie, but it would not be released until nine months after You Nasty Spy hit theaters. This makes Mo Howard's depiction of Hitler the first notable Hollywood spoof of The Dictator. Something that Mo Howard was personally very proud of. As uh, Rachel alluded to, Chaplin's film was subject to Hayes Code restrictions about the depiction of world leaders. Short films were scrutinized much less severely, so the Stooges were able to get away with more than Chaplin did, arguably. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly the depiction of the swastika as snakes. The Hayes Code at the time insisted that Hollywood depictions of foreign governments be more even-handed and Mm -hmm. display what we would now call both sidesism. Yeah. Mo, Larry, and Curly all injected more Yiddish phrases into the dialogue than usual. Mo usually slides his into his like little um, imitation Hitler yelling. Yeah, and honestly, I would say the Three Stooges are usually pretty clean when it comes to like getting stuff past the radar. But there's some actually like kind of explicit stuff in Yiddish in this short, which is pretty funny. One curious line that isn't Yiddish is uh, Curly responding to the lack of lions in um, the palace as uh, because there are no bones in ice cream. (laughs) What the hell does that mean? (laughs) Uh, That was actually a common phrase used throughout the Depression in the 1940s, usually employed in response to a question that is seen as nonsense. Honestly, we should bring that back. I'm, I'm fond of that phrase too, especially now that I know its context. Yes. The title of You Nasty Spy is a riff on comedian Joe Penner's catchphrase, You Nasty Man, and uh, also the 1939 Warner Brothers film Confessions of a Nazi Spy. 
As Rachel already mentioned, this short got a spiritual successor in 1941's I'll Never Heil Again. The Nation of Moronica was also used as the setting for 1943's Dizzy Pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, yeah. they're, it, uh, they're working with the Nazis in Moronica. <laughs> the actual Nazis, because in that one, the Three Stooges fight the Nazis. Yeah, this is one of the many, many Stooges shorts that were directed by Jules White, who is the head of Columbia Shorts Department. This is the guy who is responsible for, for like the one or two day shooting sequences. There are shorts that he managed to nail from beginning to end in one day. Damn. Yeah, so he, he was a scientist, if not an artist, in terms of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one was we're talking about was picked by Rachel and was also directed by Jules White. Idiots Deluxe in 1945, the 85th short overall. Oh, before we move on, I just wanted to point out that the sneakily dirty thing in Yiddish was I like it in the belly button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyways, Idiots Deluxe mm-hmm. is, uh, you said it's one of your personal favorites. Yes, I picked this one because I wanted a short where Mo is the victim to Curly and Larry's antics. And I think this is a really good example. And also I think it's really funny. It has a couple of moments that, you know, made me laugh hysterically as a kid. The two-man quartet scene in the beginning where Mo's like, I mean, peace and quiet. And then you just hear, da 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 playing that hot Dixieland Yeah. And uh, the stuff with the bear is always so funny. Yeah, it's such a tiny, cute little bear, too. It is. I mean, I I was stuck between this one or there's another one where the Three Stooges are airplane workers and Moog accidentally gets covered in rubber cement and they decide to get him out of it by filling him up with helium. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, but I figured that I wanted to get kind of a variety, so I figured if we were just doing one World War II flavored short. We're going to stick with this one. Alright, for this one, Mo is on trial for assaulting Larry and Curly. He finally got arrested for it. Yeah, it's like, to commit mayhem, you mean murder! And Larry's like, yeah, he tried to kill us too. <laughs> Mo appeals to the judge, Vernon Dent, claiming that he Another is a... Another lifer. Claiming that he is a sick man who was instructed by his doctor to maintain peace and quiet. <laughs> we flash back to the peace and quiet being broken by Larry and Curly loudly rehearsing their hot Dixieland jazz the routine. The two-man quartet. Yeah. <laughs> Doing, she'll be coming around the mountain in a very preservation hall jazz band fashion. Uh... <laughs> Mo cracks and wraps Curly's trombone slide around the quartet's <laughs> necks. Realizing Mo is in bad shape, mm-hmm. Larry and Curly decided to take their ailing leader on a hunting trip to relieve his stress. It's like, and in the distance, the cry of the wolf, and Curly goes, Quiet, wolf. <laughs> and yeah, nothing's better for peace and quiet than firing a bunch of shotguns at bears. Yeah, and um, they're going there because Larry saw a sign that said, fine for hunting. Mm. <laughs> Mo agrees, and the Stooges start packing. No sooner do they arrive in an empty cabin, however, when a hungry bear devours some eggs and potatoes that uh, Mo is preparing while his back is turned. Yeah, he put it next to the open window, and he's right. It is the cutest, littlest bear. You kind of open, like scratch his little ears. His nerves double frayed. Mo asks Larry and Curly to pursue the bear once they discover its existence. Naturally, Mo assumes that Larry and Curly ate the grub and attacked them first. Of course, and then Curly's like, "Mo, there's a bear in the window." <laughs> After a succession of antics, the bear winds up driving the wheel of the car and <laughs> wrecks the vehicle against a tree. Yeah, the bear waves though when he drives away, which is probably one of the funniest. Back in the car. 
part room, Mo ends his story by concluding that he must go back to bed for six additional months because of this rest oh, cure. My the judge takes pity on Mo and finds him not guilty, and then returns Mo's axe to him, which uh, Mo immediately uses to attack Larry and Curly <laughs> again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. Idiots Deluxe was shot between October 5th to the 9th and directed by White, as I already said. Uh, this is the last Stooges short made in 1945. Uh, the title is a riff on Robert E. Sherwood's Idiot's Delight, which had won a Pulitzer and was adapted into a 1939 MGM dramedy starring Norma Shearer and Clark Gable. The short's premise, however, is similar to the 1934 Laurel and Hardy short Them Thar Hills. It is a direct remake of a 1935 short, Oh My Nerve, starring Monty um, Collins and Tom Kennedy. That film got an Oscar nomination for Best Comedic Short Film and was selected for preservation by the Academy uh, Film Archive in 2012. The Stooges would remake this short once again with 1957's Guns A-Poppin', employing stock footage from this short. Curly was visibly unwell on set and, at Moe's insistence, entered a cottage hospital at Santa Barbara, California. He was found to have severe hypertension and retinal hemorrhage tied to his obesity. Curly would resume filming Stooges shorts with If a Body Meets a Body five months later, but his illness had sapped his physical capabilities significantly, and a stroke would end his career shortly thereafter on May 6, 1946. Yeah, so, th- this is the last one that was still before he had like some smaller unnoticeable well let's not say unnoticeable but some minor strokes yeah this is arguably the last dude just short of their golden period as many would put it in retrospect uh, that brings us to the Hot Scots, uh, Rachel's second pick and the last one that we'll be talking about. It was uh, released in 1948 and is the 108th short row overall. I picked it because I liked it when I was a kid and I was like, we need one with Shemp. We needed it. We had a like really early short from like the early 30s and I'm going to late 40s. You know, I wanted us to have a variety in the episodes. And also I was like, Shemp. <laughs> I mean, Shemp is my favorite stooge, partially out of pity so I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about him some more this opens with the Stooges arriving in London and trying to get jobs at Scotland Yard after graduating from a correspondence detective school. They saw the ad looking for experienced yard men. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> and they are tasked with retrieving important papers, which means uh, picking up trash and pruning the hedges outside of the headquarters. Yeah, in the yard. They inadvertently get their chances to crack a case when orders blow out the window and into their hands. Dressed in kilts and talking in phony Scottish accents because the case insisted on fellow Scotsmen, the Stooges, as McMoe, McLarry, and McShamp, travel <laughs> north to Scotland and are given the task of guarding the prized possessions of the Earl of Glenheather Castle, played by Herbert Evans. Another Stooge lifer. <laughs> the castle staff are the ones ransacking the castle, and while the boys are sleeping there, they're just wandering around in fright masks and substituting themselves in paintings, and one of them an attractive woman who is Christine distra- McIntyre, the female stooge. Her alias, and this is Lorna Dune, like, like the, the cookie. cookie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I like this one because there's like some funny, you know, gags in there. Like, I, I forget, I should know because, you know, I'm a white person, so it doesn't matter, but I have some distant, like, Scottish ancestry, which always is kind of cool. My mom's an enrolled member of a certain clan. Enough of that, though. But, like, the joke of Shemp wearing the pocket pouch backwards, and then at one point he's like, Mom, is my, is my slip showing? <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, through various slapstick antics, the Stooges apprehend all of the perpetrators. The owner of the castle returns to reward them with a celebratory drink. However, because Shemp had been seeding that he's been frightened about the castle potentially being haunted, the short ends with them encountering a bagpipe-playing skeleton who frightens them to the point where everyone just runs out the window. (laughs) Yeah, what I didn't realize is that this one is a remake. Not quite. The Hot Scots was filmed from December 16th to 19th in 1946. It is the fourth Shemp era short that was made, but withheld for 19 months for reasons I couldn't discover. Mm-hmm. It got a remake. Oh, okay, that's why, okay. With uh, 1954's Scotched in Scotland, <laughs> which uh, uses a great deal of stock footage. The previous one that I mentioned, the uh, remake of Idiots Deluxe, used a little bit. This one is like a significant uh, percentage mm-hmm. of the film. The Scotland Yard footage was also recycled in 1955's Hot Ice. The setting was uh, the set from the 1946 film The Bandit of Sherwood Forest. I imagine there's lots of, like, Errol Flynn swiping sword fights in that film. I haven't seen it. Uh, The Stooges would also use this set for Square Heads of the Round Table and Fiddler's Three, both also released in 1948. You haven't really done any of the Three Stooges in the past shorts. Like, there's one where they're, you know, in ancient Rome, and they're, like, Moa Kiss, Larry Kiss, and Curly Q. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) All right, this one was directed by Edward Burns, who is, um... Excellent, sorry. Yeah, uh, not spelled the same way. Yeah, he is an interesting figure in the Stooges' directorial um, line. He started out as a sound guy who broke into directing by supervising wartime propaganda shorts. Like, apparently he wanted to get into directing, but the Columbia head didn't really believe in him. But Frank Capra put in a good word, so he's like, all right, I'll put you on these. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got assigned to the Three Stooges after the war ended. And while initially excited, he was a big fan. He was horrified by Curly's deteriorating physical condition on set. He was wondering openly why they were making this guy do this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. Yeah, most of Burns' job centered on finding ways for Curly to contribute without taxing him physically. And in those last few Stooges shorts with Curly, a goodly number of, like, characters would be, like, minor supporting villains or heavies or just sort of given more to do so mm-hmm. Curly didn't have to contribute as much. Burns never really got on well with Jules White, and he thought he was going to get fired right away. So he transferred to Hugh McCollum's shorts unit after Shemp got up and running. Burns directed features in the Blondie, Gasoline Alley, and Bowery Boys franchises. He's probably best known for Return of the Fly, and he came back to the Stooges in the 1960s and directed a number of their films, and also the live interstitials for that cartoon. Okay. He outlived most of his contemporaries. He died in the year 2000 at the age of 94. Good for him. All right, and with that, let's talk about the last few years for Moe. 
Mo ran the Stooges' business affairs and ensured a relatively comfortable lifestyle by ensuring that Columbia would provide a salary while the Stooges performed live in between their film assignments. That being said, the Stooges received a flat rate per short, and they got no royalties out of them being re-screened. In retrospect, there's no way that Mo could have anticipated that the 1950s would see the advent of this new medium called television, which ended up being this very content-hungry machine that made the Stooges' filmography an enduringly lucrative body of work. Mm-hmm. I, I bet there were plenty of moments where Howard was just like cursing himself in the night because he didn't see that coming. A more contemporary example of the opposite of this kind of deal can be found in Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Back when Netflix was consigned solely to sending you DVDs through the mail, uh, the, How quaint. <laughs> the, the two made a deal ensuring that they'd get a generous percentage of anything South Park earned through internet streaming. This was peanuts in an era where YouTube was barely off the ground, but it made them billionaires when Hulu, Paramount Plus, and HBO Max became a thing. Now Max as of today. Yeah, oh my god, man. Another example of this sort of thing happening in a way comparable to Mo is that Rod Serling was convinced to sign away the residuals for the Twilight Zone as soon as the show ended because no. he figured that uh, uh, sci-fi uh, anthologies would uh, not have uh, a lucrative uh, afterlife in TV reruns. Yeah, oh my god. I mean, in like... You know, his wife passed away recently. One of his daughters is still pretty active on social media with her dad's legacy. Yeah, I believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mo did, however, take advantage of the millions of baby boomer kids who fell in love with the Three Stooges via Saturday morning TV reruns. He instantly revived the act by hiring Joe Dorita to play Curly Joe, and they would spend the 50s and 60s appearing in various films, TV programs, and cartoons. Some of them are pretty good. Mo insisted on residuals for these efforts, mm -hmm. and he made a killing off of Three Stooges merchandise. <laughs> uh, Mo sold real estate when he became too old to do slapstick, and he died of lung cancer at the age of 77 on May 4th, 1975. Mo was portrayed by Paul Ben Victor in the 2003 Stooges biopic. Yes, the guy who played Spiro's Vandopolis on The Wire. <laughs> I mean, isn't Michael Chiklis curly, though? Yeah, that was yeah. weird. Cast in retrospect. Uh huh. I mean, I think Evan Handler was alright as Larry, though. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Oh, same. Chris Diampopoulos played Mo in the 2012 Farrelly Brothers movie. I think he, he does a pretty good job capturing the, like, spread out, you know. I, I do it's think that... It's not a great movie, but he, he does a good job. I, I, I like all three of the actors' Stooge personas. It's just the entire concept of the Farrelly Brothers doing a Three Stooges movie in 2012 just strikes me as a nobody asked for this. Yeah. Anyways, that brings us to themes. Uh, mm -hmm. I only wrote down one because, I don't know, I'm running out of Stooge stuff to talk about. Yeah, this we is the third Stooge. Yeah, we don't want to keep repeating stuff for you. But on uh, this one, I decided it was appropriate to bring up the importance of the Stooges. Mm -hmm. um, it's no secret that the three Stooges were considered disposable in the 1930s and 1940s. I bet everyone involved would be shocked that people still cared about this sort of thing in 2023. I mean, baby boomers were probably the first to consider the three Stooges important comedic artists with some kind of cultural long longevity, at least on any uh, like widespread level. And yeah, that's largely because of how accessible they were. Uh, 
Uh, every kid's programming block from like 1950 to 1980 used the, the Stooges catalog as block filler. Yeah, it's like, I think that's why like my dad, my dad was born in uh, 64, but he has um, aunts and uncles that are not much older than he is. So, you know, it was something that they would all watch together. And my grandfather loved the Three Stooges. Yeah, I, uh, last month I took my uh, dad to see a, um, a double feature of uh, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup because he'd mm-hmm. never seen a Marx Brothers movie before. Did he have and, a good time? Yeah, reasonably so. And uh, yeah, he was just he wore his Three Stooges t-shirt to it there because he's like, eh, it's close <laughs> enough. And yeah, he was talking about, you know, growing up, there was this, like, Captain Kangaroo type guy in the local Boston affiliate TV station who'd introduced Mm -hmm. uh, Stooges shorts, and I forget the name of him, but he had, like, some kind of military theme. I think that my dad probably watched the same ones, because my dad lived in New England, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts until he was about 10, so... I think that, you know, your dad and my dad are probably watching the same thing. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Laurel and Hardy and Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton, like, none of those guys were ever rerun on television on that level, which means that for anyone under the age of 80 at this moment, the Stooges are often the first and sometimes only exposure they get to Golden Age Hollywood comedy. Mm-hmm. They were definitely the first version of that that I saw outside of, like, Looney Tunes shorts, which are comparable, but they're their own. I saw the Three Stooges first. Like, when it comes to media that I was introduced to early because of my dad, love you, dad, and I'll literally be listening to this later, was Star Trek and the Three Stooges. I have no recollection of being introduced to those because I was introduced to them at, like, well, Rachel can sit up now, so I guess we should let her watch TV. Like, I remember being introduced to, like, the Looney Tunes or watching Abbott and Costello later on. You know, I didn't really like Abbott and Costello as much as I liked the Three Stooges, and the Looney Tunes are their own thing, and my sister and I had them on DVD, and we probably wore those DVDs out. My dad, uh, I mean, I'd seen Looney Tunes beforehand, but, like, my education on them came from this VHS tape that my dad created, and it took him, like, a year and a half to make it, because he would just watch, you, um, like, Looney Tunes reruns on Nickelodeon or TNT, and he'd only tape the good ones. Damn. Good for your dad. (laughs) I mean, and when it comes to, like, the Three Stooges still being relevant now, it's, like, maybe about two weeks ago, um, a little, and maybe I should say this for Curly, but it just kind of goes to show you the endurance of the Three Stooges is that a little post about how Curly Howard was a huge dog lover and he would rescue and find homes for dogs when they were on tours. So he is credited with saving about 5,000 dogs over the course of his life. Him and Doris Day. <laughs> Yeah, at the same time, the Stooges got no Oscar love, um, none of their recordings won a Grammy, and as far as I can tell, only one of their shorts is in the Library of Congress, which feels insane to me. Yeah, I think the one that was nominated for an Oscar was Men in Black, mm-hmm. which is kind of, is a weird short. It's great. It's, it's one of the earlier, like, let's let the Three Stooges be as goofy as possible. Well, we've done a number of episodes where we've talked about how the Oscars are actually pretty terrible at predicting which things are going to have cultural longevity. 
Crash. <laughs> uh, yeah, the arbiters of cultural importance still seem to frequently write them off, even today. We've talked about in previous episodes uh, about the concept of the film canon. As a refresher, I'll reiterate that I'm not crazy about the concept of a hallowed garden of artistic significance that only certain films are allowed into. Obviously, taste is subjective. Modern academics are also terrible at predicting what works will remain in the public imagination. And when you really think about it, all culture is disposable. This is all junk we use to fill our idle leisure time. It's a goof. An uplifting goof at moments, but still a goof. I don't think that people should feel obligated to seek out important films like Citizen Kane or Vertigo or The Seven Samurai unless they're actually interested in them. And I also don't like looking at culture as a gallery of unimpeachable monuments. I like to think that all culture is in conversation with each other front to back. Stuff that's considered minor, stuff that's considered major. In lots of instances, things that are considered major shrink into the horizon as time passes, and sometimes little bits of debris wind up becoming big deals. Yeah, like two things that I think really illustrate that. Uh, speaking of Matt, is just how quickly Game of Thrones lost relevance when the last season and final episode sucked horribly. It went from like the biggest juggernaut to just zilch. Nobody wanted to buy the books anymore. I work in a bookstore. I used to have to restock the books constantly. Haven't needed to do that in years. I mean, people special order them, but the demand is not as it once was. I've heard from other people that the merchandise and, like, DVD sales dropped off completely. Sure, House of the Dragon, the spin-off series, is popular, but that's largely because um, it has completely different writers. The two idiots who are running Game of Thrones, you know, their name is Mud now. But it's kind of quickly, amazing just how quickly its relevance just went gone. And for all we know, it'll get reappraised in 25 years, and then people will talk about how it's a lost classic and how we're all dipshits for not noticing how brilliant it was. I mean, it, it, I watched it, and then I quit watching it once it got bad. However, like, the first couple seasons are pretty good, but then the last season, just the, the choo-choo train goes off the track. And then speaking of things that were minor and now really popular, Clone High. Like, all the Gen Z kids are like, you know, I like your funny words magic man you know <laughs> and it's gotten a reboot which we might watch later this weekend yeah i never thought there'd be new clone no I, 20 I, I years later after this one season cult classic show i mean granted the creators are now famous and have the means but would you think that they would have picked clone high of all things to go back to mm-hmm well, I mean, they built their reputations off of taking things that everyone thought was a terrible idea and then making surprisingly good stuff out of them. Like, I didn't think a Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs no, movie would have been good. so good. I didn't think a 21 Jump Street movie would have been good. Have I some, thought, what did say? Have some fairy dust, son of a bitch. <laughs> I thought a, uh, I, essentially a 90-minute toy commercial for, with Lego would be unwatchable. Okay, it's at the leg. The first one is amazing. And now people like Clone High. Yeah, now Clone High is like it's on TikTok. It's like on the man. Once it's on TikTok, them them Gen Z kids, damn. So yeah, are the Three Stooges culturally important? I mean, I think I would you'd say have. Yes. I, I think you'd have a hard time arguing that they aren't. Mm-hmm. I think it's a safe bet that film students will be picking their shorts apart in two hundred years. 
But yeah, with that in mind, who cares? You're not going to be around 200 years. You should watch the Stooges because you think they're funny, not because you think you'll earn some kind of elite taste-making merit badge for it. Yeah. I mean, I watch them half out of nostalgia for, like, I watch them, like, you know, if my mom went out to do something and it was my dad and my sister and I, that meant we were going to watch the Three Stooges on VHS. And then on Saturday, um, the Stoogeology class hosted by Leslie Nielsen, we would watch that and, like, my dad would make pancakes, you know? And a lot of times the Three Stooges, they're available on YouTube. They haven't been, like, removed. Maybe they will be. I have a bunch of them on DVD that's all at my parents' house. So, I don't know. They probably don't have to worry about being, like, snipped or streamed or whatever. Yeah, my interest in the Stooges peaked when I was around 12 or 13 and then I moved on to other things. To be honest, I haven't really re- revisited them in significant ways until this podcast. So, this hey, has been an interesting refresher yeah, for me. Yeah, it has been. And we still have, you know, Curly to do. How about Joe Besser? Yeah. Fine, I guess. Um, <laughs> With enthusiasm like that, how can what? we not? You know what? We're gonna have to. But here's 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 my request, and I'm sure Ryan's gonna edit this out of the episode. So if we do Joe Besser, will you do um, Gerard Butler's Phantom of the Opera? Sweet tap dancing Christ. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I have done, like, eight Phantom of the Opera, so I guess I have to talk about that one. Yes, okay, so we've made a deal, everyone. Are you hearing that? I'll be the Joe Besser shorts, but how about this, Ryan? I'll write the notes for Gerard Butler as the Phantom. You gotta say it that way every time. (laughs) Yes, I will, I promise. All right, so something to look forward to, everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, join us next time. Knock, knock, knock.